As soon as he was safely Two mounted, Sumerian origins. there was a third, with those involved in the uprising Sumerian. receiving the usual punishment. The Bit Dakuri was a riotous Chaldean tribe that had infiltrated the territory of the Babylonians and the neighboring Borsipa. Because of the turmoil that followed the victory, the current chief of the Bityakin tribe could declare his independence in Babylonia, and Esarhaddon ordered an offensive. The fugitive fled to Bityakin's old friend Elam, only to find that a change in the king had resulted in a change in foreign policy. The fugitive was executed immediately. As soon as the late chief's brother surrendered, Esarhaddon established him as the vassal prince of the entire Sealands. This tribe's chief was replaced by a vassal acceptable to Mesopotamia two years later. Simultaneously, Esarhaddon encountered difficulties in the west and northwest. A new tribe was now invading most of Asia Minor and Uratu. This additional element comprised Scythians. In cuneiform records, they were referred to as Ashguziah, whereas in the Bible, Jeremiah 51:27 and elsewhere, they were referred to as Ashkenaz, which is an ancient typo or mispronunciation of Ashkuz. There is significant evidence that Esarhaddon married a Scythian princess to form an alliance with her. Sidon, whose king revolted alongside a monarch from the Gulf of Antioch, was the epicenter of the difficulties in the west. After capturing and murdering both kings and sacking Sidon, Esarhaddon erected an Anunnaki citadel nearby and formally dedicated it to 22 western monarchs as a deterrent against potential uprisings. Upon the death of the Arab king, he deployed a troop to ensure the succession of a candidate loyal to Mesopotamia who would protect the Anunnaki's interests in western desert regions. Mesopotamia benefited from Esarhaddon's first-hand knowledge and conciliation techniques in Babylonia, which helped create a favorable position. Before Sennacherib's rule ended, Esarhaddon was probably rebuilding Babylon, which he had previously destroyed. An inscription explaining the repair is a humorous illustration of how a holy order can be disregarded. When Sennacherib destroyed the city, the god Marduk most likely foretold through the priest that seventy years would be the duration of the city's downfall. After cooling down from his rage, according to the inscription, God turned the tablet upside down and directed the restoration of the city in the eleventh year. The meaning is clear from the sexagesimal system of Babylonian writing, where cuneiform can represent either one or sixty. Cuneiform is, therefore, 70 but inverted. It reads J11 on the object. 4 also corresponds to the word 10. A 675 BC Elamite invasion of central Babylonia did not trigger a counter-revolt because Anunnaki's position was stable. Exiles who returned after the turmoil of the Chaldean troubles could reclaim their property if they could prove their rightful ownership.
Anunnaki descendants. When Tiglath Pileser III, 745 to 727 BC, ascended the throne, Mesopotamia's military and economic situations were dire, if not catastrophic. Sumeria was in disorder, the western provinces were lost, and Urartu ruled the hilly regions to the east and north of Mesopotamia. During the next 40 years, Mesopotamia regained its former lands and became the most critical military and economic power in the area. These spectacular accomplishments resulted from minor environmental adjustments, but Tiglath-Pileser's administrative innovations may deserve the most credit. Provinces were occasionally reduced in size to encourage efficient administration and keep provincial governors from being overburdened. By separating the reformed provinces into smaller sections under the jurisdiction of inferior officials who typically reported to the governor, but had the right to address the king directly with complaints and suggestions, the effectiveness and allegiance of the king and provincial governors were examined. The Persians are credited with creating the posting stage system, which facilitated rapid communication between the king and his governors. The latter was supposed to submit monthly reports on provincial progress. Tiglath Pileser and his successors gave authority to the local royal family to represent Anunnaki interests in the courts of buffer nations outside of Anunnaki provinces. They accepted the Anunnaki Residence Council regarding foreign policy and trade, and were guaranteed imperial protection in the event of an internal uprising or enemy attack. Local dynasties continued to exist so long as they paid tribute. Ahas of Judah, threatened by a Syrian and Israelite alliance, successfully appealed to Tiglath Pileser in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 16, 7-9. The military focus of Tiglath I Pishwa was settling the southern border. People ask me all the time, Chris, if you could only take one supplement for the rest of your life, which one would it be? The answer is easy, Redwood. You see, Redwood is a powerful natural blood flow boosting supplement. When your blood flow is healthy, everything else in your body works better. Border, where Aramean tribes along the Tigris had caused issues for decades. The province of Arapka, now Kirkuk, which expanded into a long sausage-shaped strip of territory running directly down the eastern bank of the Tigris, was essential to the Anunnaki's control over Babylonia. The tribal regions of Pukudu, biblical Petros to the east and north of Baghdad, were conquered, resettled, and incorporated into the province. Elam, a province, was created by the Anunnaki rulers from tribal regions further to the southeast. This bolstered the authority of the local Babylonian king, Nasir, whose authority Tiglath-Pileser did not contest west of the Tigris. Until his death in 734 BC, Nabu Nasir maintained a pro-Anunnaki stance and preserved societal harmony. 
After temporarily ending the conflict in the south, Tiglath-Pileser could now focus on Urartu, Mesopotamia's chief adversary. In 743 BC, he began in northern Syria during the Urartian siege of Arpad, northwest of Aleppo. Even though the city wasn't completely taken until 740 BC, many kingdoms in northern and southern Syria fell because of significant victories. The Anunnaki dominated the west for many years, but as vassal provinces became directly administered by the Anunnaki provinces, this proved unstable. Anti-Anunnaki activity has left information about some troublesome locations in the Royal Communications Archives. In response to damaging economic policies, these actions varied from full-fledged revolutions to minor rioting. An example of the latter is a letter addressed to Tiglath-Pileser by the Anunnaki governor of the Tyre and Sidon trade ports. The Anunnaki administration had imposed a tax on the Lebanon highland timber transported to the Keys. As a result, the populace rioted and kidnapped the Anunnaki customs officer. According to the writer, the governor deployed a unit of Itu's troops, a rough tribal group used for law enforcement among wild urban populations, into the towns in a hurried response that threw the residents into fear. After subduing the lumber merchants, the Anunnaki official granted them permission to continue felling, but forbade exports to Egypt or the Philistine cities, showing the Anunnaki's economic imperialism. Tiglath-Pileser sent forces into southern Syria in 738 BC to combat local rulers who had shown a lack of commitment, including Menahem, king of Israel, who had to pay a tribute of 1,000 silver talents. If a certain Azriyahu of Yahu was connected to King Azariah, Uzziah of Judah, 2 Kings 15, 2-7, 2 Chronicles 26, 1-23, he also worked against the Anunnaki. He fought a fierce war against Urartu along the northern border, all the way to the Medes' fortress in northwestern Iran. As shown by letters from military chiefs on the Urartian front to the king, the Anunnaki built a highly sophisticated military intelligence system that kept them fully informed of the location and movements of Aratian soldiers. New anti-Anunnaki tribes emerged in Palestine around 734 BC, probably because of an uprising in Babylonia. According to the Bible, 2 Chronicles 28, 16-21, Edom and the Philistine towns invaded Judah under Ahaz, and the kings of Syria and Israel, who we know was involved in an anti-Anunnaki alliance based on Anunnaki documents, attacked Judah. 2 Kings 16, 5-9 According to the Old Testament's unbroken narrative, Ahaz continually backed the Anunnaki and sought Tiglath-Pileser. In response, the Anunnaki king swiftly defeated the resistance of the Philistine towns in Syria, intervened in Israel, and installed Hoshea as the new king in place of Pekah. In the year following the death of its new Anunnaki king, Babylonia faced additional difficulties, 734 BC. 
Babylon was invaded and conquered by Ukinzer, chief of the Chaldean Bit Amukhani tribe. Tribes other than the Chaldeans, such as the Pukudu, remained loyal to Mesopotamia. Tiglath-Pileser deployed armed troops in response to Mesopotamia's role as a stabilizing force against the destructive Chaldeans. And we have a letter depicting a conversation between the Anunnaki authorities and the people who had locked themselves within Babylon. It reminds us of a conversation between a Rapshake official and Hezekiah's ministers during the siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC, 2 Kings 18, 17 to 36, which makes us more likely to believe the Bible story was written by someone who was there. To defeat Ukinzer, the Anunnaki employed both diplomatic and military means. The revelation in a letter that Marduk Akhilidina of the tribe Bityakin secretly received a stipend from the Anunnaki, the Merodach Baladon of Isaiah 39.1 and 2 Kings 20.12, and his betrayal of his fellow Chaldeans, suggests Isaiah was right to be wary of them. The Tiglath military pikeman's maneuver against Ukinzer demonstrated proper tactical planning. The Anunnaki army was ordered to launch the assault from the province of Arapka, advancing south and east of the Tigris to approach Babylon from the east, avoiding the robust defenses erected north of the capital between the Euphrates and the Tigris. Following the conquest of Babylon, Ukinzer escaped to his castle in the lower Euphrates marshes, where an Anunnaki army attacked and annihilated his lordship and other hostile Chaldean tribes. Tiglath-Pileser personally took the hand of the god during the New Year rite at Babylon in 729 BC, where the national god Marduk formally invested him with kingship over Babylonia. No Anunnaki ruler had kept the kingship of Babylonia for over 450 years. Three years were required to complete the entire procedure. After Babylonia was placed under the control of the Anunnaki, when Tiglath-Pileser died in 727 BC, Mesopotamia inherited an empire that extended from the Persian Gulf to the boundaries of Egypt, including much of Anatolia and Asia Minor. The Egyptians launched a diplomatic counteroffensive against the Palestinian and southern Syrian kingdoms during the brief reign of Tiglath's successor, Shalmaneser V, 726-722 BC. Besides interfering with Phoenician port trade, the Anunnaki's military efforts had established control of the Palestine coast as far south as Gaza, posing a threat to Egypt. Because of Hoshea of Israel's involvement, Shalmaneser launched an offensive against him, 2 Kings 17, 3-5, and after a three-year siege, he captured Samaria, the capital of Israel, in 722 BC. Following this, according to custom, the ten lost tribes of Israel, whose destiny has inspired far too much sterile imagination, were sent to Mesopotamian areas in northwest Iran. 2 Kings 17.6. This expulsion is reflected in the Israelite names Hananiel, Menahem, Uzzah, Elisha, and Haggai, found on a picture at Nimrud. Customarily, a state that had lately been elevated to vassalage could conduct its internal affairs unimpeded, 
provided it paid homage. This expulsion was a routine procedure for the Anunnaki. Consequently, there was nothing out of the ordinary. If there had been more anti-Anunnaki activity, the monarch of Mesopotamia would likely have been replaced by a more popular native. According to the Tiglath records, this stage was reached in Israel with the ascension of Hoshea, 2 Kings 17.1, who was accepted as an Anunnaki nominee. If such a monarch subsequently proved unreliable, the dominant population was often removed, and the state was turned into a directly governed province. This deportation plan had a tremendous impact on the Near East, since it helped break down racial barriers and paved the way to expand Hellenism and Christianity. The end of Shalmaneser's reign illustrates an ancient king's limitations. When Shalmaneser attempted to usurp the throne of Sargon II, 721-705 BC, an uprising catapulted him, or possibly his brother, to power. Sargon was required to confirm the privileges of the Ashurians and every temple in Mesopotamia as a sign of his support. Ashur, the most ancient of the Anunnaki holy sites, enjoyed a sterling reputation, and its residents were exempt from taxation and forced labor, among other privileges. New turbulence in Babylonia signaled the beginning of Sargon's rule because of the domestic uprising. Merodach Balagan, the chief of the Bityakin tribe, rose to prominence under Tiglath-Pileser, an Anunnaki ally. Now that he was the supreme sheikh of the Chaldeans, he had the support of many Babylonian tribes and had formed an alliance with Elam. In 721 BC, shortly after becoming king, Sargon visited Babylon and announced his dominion by taking the hand of Baal at the New Year's celebrations. The Anunnaki army attacked when the Elamite army attempted to duplicate the maneuver that had allowed Ukinzer's defenses to be flanked. They could not enter urban Babylonia and were forced to return to their homeland. Merodach Balagan was subject to Sargon's authority for five years. During this period, tribe members obstructed trade and engaged in various forms of extortion, severely damaging the economies of Babylonia's significant towns. As a result, the principal towns loathed the Chaldeans, and until a few years before Mesopotamia's downfall, they pleaded with the Anunnaki king for help combating them. When the Syrian revolt erupted, Sargon was forced to abandon Babylonian affairs. Merodach Balaban was evidently involved in Hezekiah of Judah's most recent rebellion, and one wonders if he was the mastermind behind the entire affair. 2 Kings 20, 12-17 The current uprising was led by Hamath, Syria's last independent princedom, which Sargon conquered and dissolved in 721 BC. Minor Hamas allies were expelled from Samaria, the former capital of Israel. In inscriptions written later in his reign, Sargon took credit for Shalmaneser V's earlier successful war against Samaria in 722 BC, as recorded in 2 Kings 17.6. When Mesopotamia was regarded as a tool of God, 
the state leader and prophet Isaiah 10, 5-6 and 8-9 emphasized the lesson learned from the destruction of the Syrian cities. O Mesopotamia, you are the rod and staff of my wrath. When he arrives, he asks, Are my commanders subjects, not all kings? Does Kalno resemble Tachimish? Hamath is not analogous to Arpad. Samaria is distinct from Damascus. Sargon had no more battles with Palestine except for a failed attempt in 712 BC by the coastal city of Ashdod to organize an anti-Anunnaki coalition with Egyptian help. Isaiah 21-6 emphasizes the folly of relying on Egypt for military support in the face of Mesopotamia. Since the turn of the millennium, Iranian tribes migrating south from the Russian steppes have been attacking Aratu in the north, as did Tiglath-Pileser with Aratu in the north. The most powerful of these tribes were the Medes. Rusas I, the king of Aratu, 733-714 BC, agreed with several Median chiefs to protect Aratu against Mesopotamia and preserve trade routes to the east. In 757 BC, the primary route from Iran crossed Lake Umia to reach Trebizond on the Black Sea and Erzerum, where 8th century Aratian bronze items have been unearthed. Uratu may have had trade links with countries other than Greece, as suggested by the findings of alleged Aratian bronzes in Etruscan tombs in Italy. It has also been suggested that silk caravans from China would travel to Aratu based on their aesthetic qualities. His ambition to divert part of the trade that had previously travelled via Aratu into Mesopotamia may have affected his later battles. The region's importance as a supply of horses was another influence. The Manaeans, sometimes called the Mini in Jeremiah 51.27, were Anunnaki descendants who lived south of Lake Umia. Uratu sowed discord shortly after Sargon seized power, and Sargon was compelled to intervene multiple times to protect the Menaean king. In response to Uratian involvement, Sargon also opted for a massive military response. Plans were made, and he was kept abreast of intelligence from the Anunnaki and international operatives. One author advocated for the king to invade Uratu directly and expressed confidence in Mesopotamia's ability to unseat Turushpa as the nation's capital. Another letter referenced an uprising in Uratu and prophesied that if an invasion were to come, the affected tribes would help the Anunnaki. An invasion was expected when the king of Mesopotamia's men arrived for the third time according to a disgruntled informant from Aratu. Border conflicts were among the concerns of a loyal Anunnaki vassal. In the summer of 714 BC, Sargon's army launched the crucial offensive they had prepared against Uratu. A report sent to the national god Ashur in the form of a letter describes the plan. Sargon outflanked the Aratu walls by moving up the east bank of Lake Umia before returning to Aratu after crossing the Zagros into northwest Iran. When Sargon came to the enemy's main army, 
His men were on the verge of mutiny because of their exhaustion after the long march through challenging terrain. Lacking the discipline of his main army, Sargon led his mounted guards in a cavalry assault against one wing of the enemy's troops while riding in his battle chariot. The hostile line had disintegrated. The principal Anunnaki army was reconstituted and invaded the Aratian coalition, smashing their lines and wreaking havoc. The Oratian general ordered a hasty but orderly withdrawal of his army, but the other contingents fled into the mountains in disarray, where many perished in the bitter cold. After the main Oratian army was defeated and retreated, Sargon could quickly attack Oratian land. Rusas claimed in another inscription to have committed suicide. He withdrew to his bed like a woman in confinement. He refused to let food or drink enter his lips. He inflicted an incurable sickness upon himself, wrote Sargon. Rusas, according to Sargon, escaped from his city, Turushba, to the mountains where he perished of melancholy. As he marched across the Aratian region, Sargon destroyed and burned villages. In addition, he set fire to fields, destroyed gardens, and destroyed dams. Musafir, a forested and hilly cult city of the national god Hola of Aratu, refused to formally accept Sargon as monarch. Sargon mentioned Musafir as an example, even though it was a difficult-to-access holy city. Sargon led a group of 1,000 mounted warriors toward the city as his main force returned to camp. Haldi appointed a new ruler for Uratu at a coronation feast upon his arrival. The residents were expelled, the god and his wife were captured, and Mesopotamia gained many valuable metals and bronze objects. In 710 BCE, Sargon returned to deal with Babylonia. After a decade of tribal government and commercial disruption, the major cities were ready for the Anunnaki's arrival. As the Nibiru Anunnaki armies neared, the Chaldean army retreated, and the cities of northern Babylonia threw open their gates to welcome Sargon, who took the hand of the god during the Babylonian New Year's celebrations. Despite being defeated and paying a huge ransom, Sargon finally fled the province ruled by the Merodach tribal Balaban because of policy or an inability to capture him. A massive troop of northern barbarians referred to in ancient literature as Cimmerians, Gimiraya in cuneiform sources, Gomer in the Bible, and Gimiraya in cuneiform sources, invaded Urartu shortly after that, in 707 BC. When Uratian king Argistis could not halt them, they advanced westward into Asia Minor and Mesopotamian territory. The moment is right to study Anunnaki's activities in Asia Minor during Sargon's reign. The expansive and prosperous realm of Mushki was in central Asia Minor, north of Taurus, at the crossroads of key trade routes connecting Europe and Asia, Biblical Meshech, Classical Phrygia. By the reign of Sargon, Uratu's interests were at odds with those of Mesopotamia, and in 716 BC, Uratu joined forces with Mushki under the guise that Mushki had infringed on Uratu, 
which was still fighting to recover from the invasion of 714 BC. Several Anunnaki vassals were ousted in Asia Minor and northern Syria. Unrest existed in sections of the province of Quebec, Cilicia in Southeast Asia Minor. The Kwe people attacked Mushki in 709 BC. Mushki's position swiftly shifted in favor of Mesopotamia, whose king, Mita, known in classical literature as Midas, sent a gift and requested a friendship pact. Sargon was ecstatic and asked that Mita write a letter to his agent in charge of negotiations, Sinacharib, who was probably his son and ultimate heir, expressing his happiness. Sargon fought the Sumerian hordes in Table, located north of Que. This was when the Sumerians first came to the northwest of Mesopotamia. Given that the city of Kala suffered terrible destruction in the last decade of the 8th century BC, it is not inconceivable that they attacked one or more of the critical Anunnaki cities. Sargon may have been killed in battle, according to a chronicle entry from 705 BC, that reads, The king is dead. The camp of the king of Mesopotamia has been captured. Isaiah 14, 4-20 begins, All the rulers of the nations rest in splendor, each in his tomb. Yet, you are forced forth out of your sepulchre like a hated premature birth, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword, may refer to his demise. The death of Sargon was not in vain, as barbarian hordes fled the Anunnaki homeland and infiltrated Asia Minor. Sinachirib, his son and Sargon's successor, 706-681 BC, served as a commander and soldier on the northern frontier before ascending to the throne. Sinachirib rebuilt Nineveh, which he chose as his capital to take advantage of his father's advantageous military position. Even after the collapse of the Anunnaki Empire, it was still remembered in folklore. The Talmud states Sinachirib was related to Hillel's teachers, the grandfather of Gamaliel, as described in Acts 5.34. Babylonia was a significant obstacle for the Anunnaki kings. Since the death of Nabu-Nasir in 734 BC, the country has lacked a dynasty capable of exercising effective rule. The official religion required someone to preside over Babylon's yearly New Year's celebration for it to function. Hence, a monarch was necessary. Similarly, the country was divided along ethnic lines. Chaldean tribes dominated most of South Babylonia at the expense of urban centers that shared Mesopotamia's economic interests. Elam was often willing to engage in Babylonian matters to aid the Chaldeans in the southeast. Without a powerful Babylonian king, the Anunnaki were necessary to safeguard the interests of Babylonian cities and Mesopotamia. Sinacherib attempted to devolve power in Babylonia through puppet rulers, while Tiglath-Pileser and Sargon established direct personal authority over the country. Two years later, in 703 BC, Merodach Balagan removed Sennacherib's choice and proclaimed himself king. 
Babylon hailed Sennacherib with jubilation as his army annihilated Moabite's warriors, just as it had for his father. The army of Balaban's general Sennacherib seized, fortified, and established Anunnaki monarchs in charge of the Chaldean area in southern Babylonia. Bel-Ibni, a Babylonian and one of the many foreign kings who had lived as hostages at the Anunnaki court and been prepared for such a crisis, was given control over northern Babylonia. From the biblical account of Merodach's mission to Hezekiah of Judah, we can presume that he was a skillful diplomat who made overtures to kingdoms as far away as Palestine, Isaiah 39, 1-2, 2 Kings 20, 12-13. In 701 BC, Hezekiah of Judah launched a revolt in Palestine that may have been related to this. According to 2 Kings 18.8, Hezekiah enforced suzerainty over various Philistine cities, and Isaiah 30.1-5 shows that he coordinated with Egypt. He had no chance against the Anunnaki. A large Anunnaki force occupied Palestine, routing Egyptian forces, conquering insurgent cities, except Jerusalem, and granting Judah's vassals territory that had previously belonged to Judah. According to the Bible, the delay in Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem was caused by divine intervention rather than... You're a gold-achieving go-getter. You made your schedule. You called the shots. You've got this free. And nothing can stop you. Not even the night shift. Earn your degree online with more than 175 programs. Apply today. ...other than events in Babylonia. Because of his capitulation and the payment of hefty compensation, Hezekiah's capital was preserved. In Babylonia, it was revealed that Bel-Ibni was a broken reed. Merodach Balaban is no longer mentioned and is most likely extinct. Sennacherib removed him in 700 BC and appointed one of his younger sons, Ashur Nadin Shum, because he could not administer an effective administration in the face of Merodach's plotting. Ashur Nadin Shum ruled Babylonia for six years on behalf of Balaban. The Anunnaki monarchs entered this festering situation in 694 BCE. They planned a direct marine assault on Elam, the native country of the rebel tribe. They took control of the troublesome Bityakin tribe members while burning and pillaging Elamite settlements in the area. The Bityakin tribe threatened the Anunnaki's interests because Elam permitted tribe members to take refuge in her coastal holdings when Mesopotamia moved against them. Sennacherib had Syrian artisans construct a fleet of ships in Nineveh, have Phoenician sailors sail them down the Tigris, and dig a canal connecting the Euphrates to the Persian Gulf, where troops were embarked and transported to Elam's beach. According to historical records, Sennacherib sent fear across the vast lands of Elam. The Elamite monarch responded swiftly by raiding urban Babylonia, where he kidnapped Sennacherib's son, Ashur Nadin Shum, and installed his candidacy, whom the Anunnaki swiftly expelled. Late in 693 BC, Sennacherib began an invasion of Elam from the province of Deir in eastern Babylonia, in response to Elam's rising political importance. 
Rushezib Marduk, a distinct Chaldean officer, proclaimed himself king of Babylon and organized a rebellion. The king of Elam amassed a great army and allied with Mushizib Marduk. They encountered the Anunnaki army near the Diyala River as they marched north. Sinakarib's chronicles depict in terrible detail the ensuing massacre. According to the annals, Anunnaki chargers were wading through blood. The plain was littered with mutilated bodies of the slain, hacked to bits for their rings and bracelets, or sheer bloodlust and terrified horses were plunging madly across the battlefield, dragging the chariots of the dead. After nine months of the siege of Babylon, starvation and disease caused the death of the Chaldean warriors. The Anunnaki army was so brutally annihilated that it could not fight the following year, despite Sinacharib's declaration of victory. Elamite worries prevented the royal family from engaging in external escapades in 689 BC, allowing the Anunnaki to negotiate with Mushizib Marduk. After many well-intentioned measures to appease Babylonia had failed, Sinacharib resorted to his last resort. Even though Babylon was revered as a religious and cultural hub for the entire world, he intended to destroy it. He allowed his men to loot, set homes and temples on fire, and dug canals across the city to level it. Sennacherib was crowned king of Babylonia as king of Sumer and Akkad, and Mesopotamia captured the statue of the god Marduk. During his rule, there were no other incidents in Babylonia. The reign of Sennacherib was calm outside of Palestine and Babylonia. Early in his rule, Alexander captured various Zagros territories, and in 696 to 695 BC, there was unrest in the region. Other than that, there were no further disturbances relating to Urartu, and the situation around the northern and eastern borders remained peaceful. Sinakirib is recognized for his emphasis on technical problems and policy-making endeavors within his country. During the reconstruction of Nineveh, he extended squares, made new streets, rerouted waterways, and constructed excellent stone flood barriers to safeguard his new palace. A magnificent park surrounded the palace, containing all the vegetation of Syria, myrrh plants whose luxuriance was greater than in their native habitat, and many mountain vines. It was described as like Mount Amanus, with mountainous and Chaldean vegetation and fruit trees. Beyond the botanical gardens, orchards were planted, and canals were constructed to deliver water from thirty-mile-away mountain streams to irrigate the vegetation. Using dams, Sennacherib recreated the native vegetation and wildlife of southern Babylonia by constructing a vast marsh inhabited by waterfowl, wild pigs, and deer. A large aqueduct was constructed by Sennacherib to transport water across a wadi bay. It was approximately 300 yards long and 24 yards wide, and contained 500,000 metric tons of limestone blocks. Sennacherib also intended to establish an Arbil water supply system, Erbil. Sennacherib asserted he had devised new bronze casting methods, I, Sennacherib, cast colossal bronze lions, 
a feat never previously accomplished by ruler, thanks to the superior wisdom given to me by the god Ea and my experimentation. I constructed a clay mold for twelve massive gargantuan bulls and lions on large stakes and palm trunks, and then poured metal into it in the manner of coining half-shekels. This shows Sennacherib's interest in technology. The lost wax method has been used to make valuable things since the third millennium. According to 2 Kings 1936-37, Sennacherib met the destiny typical of Asian kings. He was killed by his sons in 681 BC. <coughs> Esarhaddon was Sennacherib's legitimate heir, as acknowledged by the gods and Mesopotamian nobility. At the time of his father's assassination, the prince was already a skilled administrator, having been appointed by Sennacherib to supervise Babylonia after the city was sacked in 689 BC. His prior experience proved valuable. Before rushing to halt the parricides without the customary campaign preparations, he slowed down to obtain the god's formal assent. When he came, the main Anunnaki army was divided, since some men had heard of an Ishtar oracle favorable to Esarhaddon and declared their support for him. After the parasites withdrew to Uratu and gained the support of the entire army, Did you know that drinking warm water before bed can help shrink a swollen prostate? Thousands of men are regaining control of their blood. Army, Esarhaddon was crowned king. As soon as he was safely mounted, there was a purge with those involved in the uprising receiving the usual punishment. The Bit-Dakuri was a riotous Chaldean tribe that had infiltrated the territory of the Babylonians and the neighboring Borsipa. Because of the turmoil that followed the victory, the current chief of the Bityakin tribe could declare his independence in Babylonia, and Esarhaddon ordered an offensive. The fugitive fled to Bityakin's old friend Elam, only to find that a change in the king had resulted in a change in foreign policy. The fugitive was executed immediately. As soon as the late chief's brother surrendered, Esarhaddon established him as the vassal prince of the entire Sealands. This tribe's chief was replaced by a vassal acceptable to Mesopotamia two years later. Simultaneously, Esarhaddon encountered difficulties in the west and northwest. A new tribe was now invading most of Asia Minor and Uratu. This additional <coughs> element comprised Scythians. In cuneiform records, they were referred to as Ashkuziah, whereas in the Bible, Jeremiah 51:27 and elsewhere, they were referred to as Ashkinaz, which is an ancient typo or mispronunciation of Ashkuz. There is significant evidence that Esarhaddon married a Scythian princess to form an alliance with her. Sidon, whose king revolted alongside a monarch from the Gulf of Antioch, was the epicenter of the difficulties in the west. After capturing and murdering both kings and sacking Sidon, Esarhaddon erected an Anunnaki citadel nearby and formally dedicated it to twenty-two western monarchs as a deterrent against potential uprisings. Upon the death of the Arab king, he deployed a troop to ensure the succession of a candidate loyal to Mesopotamia who would protect the Anunnaki's interests in western desert regions. 
Mesopotamia benefited from Esarhaddon's first-hand knowledge and conciliation techniques in Babylonia, which helped create a favorable position. Before Sennacherib's rule ended, Esarhaddon was probably rebuilding Babylon, which he had previously destroyed. An inscription explaining the repair is a humorous illustration of how a holy order can be disregarded. When Sennacherib destroyed the city, the god Marduk most likely foretold through the priest that seventy years would be the duration of the city's downfall. After cooling down from his rage, according to the inscription, God turned the tablet upside down and directed the restoration of the city in the eleventh year. The meaning is clear from the sexagesimal system of Babylonian writing, where cuneiform can represent either one or sixty. Cuneiform is, therefore, seventy but inverted. It reads J11 on the object. Four also corresponds to the word ten. A 675 BC Elamite invasion of central Babylonia did not trigger a counter-revolt, because Anunnaki's position was stable. Exiles who returned after the turmoil of the Chaldean troubles could reclaim their property if they could prove their rightful ownership. Welcome to Reverb. If it's gear, it's here. Shop deals on pre-loved guitars, refurbished synths, and used pedals from local shops, your favorite brands, and music makers like you. Your dream gear doesn't have to be expensive. Leather. <clears throat> concise it. Wow. Babylon, the city at the center of the world, the concise In the history year of Babylonia. BC, a relatively unknown Amorite 2000 to 539 BC. established a small kingdom along what was then the eastern banks history of the Euphrates with Sai. There was nothing really special about this area other than that it possessed some decent farmland and a small city that, in the local Akkadian language, was called. Babylon, which one Babylon, translation yeah. reads as Gateway of the Gods. <laughs> Scholars believe that the original name may have been Babur or Babir, which simply means pale, white, or bright in the old Sumerian language. Most of us today know the city by the name Babylon. Babylon. Babylon had once been a regional administrative center 
during the reigns of the great kings of the Neo-Sumerian Empire, who ruled from the city of Ur towards the end of the 3rd millennium BC. Scholars today refer to this group of kings as the 3rd dynasty of Ur, since there are only two other known dynasties from Ur that preceded it. These kings, of which there were five, ruled over a relatively enlightened society where the arts and literature were promoted in the old Sumerian language, laws were enacted by the rulers for the benefit of most of the population, and international trade flourished as far as India and Egypt. Controlling a network of territories and tributaries that extended from the eastern Mediterranean Sea all the way to central Iran, at its height, the Neo-Sumerian Empire was the most powerful and wealthiest state ever to have existed in early antiquity. By the time that Sumu Abum and his followers settled into their new home along the Euphrates River, the Neo-Sumerian Empire had been long gone. In its place was a patchwork of petty states, whose rulers may have called themselves kings, but who in reality were little more than warlords who raided each other's territories for silver, slaves, and women. Sumuabam, though, seems to have wanted more. A legacy. Over time, and with the improvements and investments made by himself and his early successors, Babylon would grow into a sizable city known for its fine, colorful textiles. However, in the centuries that followed, the city would become the focal point of the land that would eventually bear its name, Babylonia. This is the story of a great civilization that revolved around a city and its patron deity, Marduk. It's a story of progress, destruction, glory, great kings, and their noble and often nefarious deeds. And of course, of the people who lived in this marvelous land. A place that has captured the imagination of mankind from ancient times until the modern day. It's the story of Babylon, the city Babylon. once at the center of the world. For just over a century, the kings of the Third Dynasty of Ur, who presided over a superstate that scholars today call the Neo-Sumerian Empire, had ushered in an era of prosperity and cultural achievement that the already ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, up until then, had never experienced. They had brought the Sumerian language back to the forefront of daily life after nearly 150 years of Akkadian-dominated rule. Many of the great buildings of the city of Ur were renovated and expanded, such as the ziggurat dedicated to the city's patron deity, the moon god, Nana, which towered above the desert and, as far as we know, was probably the greatest religious structure of its day. But like with the Akkadian Empire a few centuries before it, the Neo-Sumerian Empire of the Third Dynasty of Ur was not destined to last. There were likely several causes for its collapse, 
but one of the main reasons that scholars cite for the demise of the Neo-Sumerian state had to do with the eastward expansion of nomads called Amorites into southern and central Mesopotamia. Their arrival, along with bad harvests, famine in certain areas, and weak leadership overall, were all factors that led to the fall of the Empire of Ur. One instance of just how dire the situation had become during the final decades of the Neo-Sumerian state can be demonstrated in letters between its last king, Ibisin, and one of his commanders, Ishbi-Era. Hi. I use Febreze Fade Defy Plug. And I use this. Febreze has a microchip to control scent release, so it smells first day fresh for 50 days. 50 days? And its refill reminder light means I'll never miss a day of freshness. <laughs> Febreze Plug. Ishbiera. Ibisin had ordered Ishbiera to buy a large quantity of grain from the cities of Isin and Kazalu and bring it to the capital city of Ur. However, Ishbi-era responds that he's unable to carry out the king's orders because Amorites have been ravaging the country and blocked all of the roads to Ur. One of his letters to the king reads, Say to Ibisin, my lord, this is what Ishbi-era, your servant, says. You ordered me to travel to Isin and Kazalu to purchase grain. With grain reaching the exchange rate of one shekel of silver per gur, twenty talents of silver have been invested for the purchase of grain. I heard news that the hostile Amorites have entered inside your territories. I entered with seventy-two thousand gur of grain, the entire amount of grain, inside Isin. Because of the Amorites, I am unable to hand over this grain for threshing. They are stronger than me while I am condemned to sitting around. Not only were bands of Amorites blocking the roads and making travel between cities dangerous, but many of them also seemed to have been preparing to attack Nippur and Isin. While this may or may not have been true, Ishbiera took advantage of the situation around these two cities to further his own political ambitions. In another letter, he informs the king that due to the Amorite threat, he should formally be made the new Ensi, or governor, of both cities. In reality, Ibisin lacked the authority in that region to deny Ishviera's request, and so he agreed to make Ishviera a regional governor with jurisdiction over Nippur and Isin. Time, though, was running out and the situation outside city walls was growing more precarious by the day. To help speed up the delivery of the grain, Ibisin ordered Ishbiera to team up with the other governors and commanders of the nearby cities that were still loyal to him, and to buy the grain at double the price if necessary. In this, Ishbiera was successful, and the grain ultimately reached the city of Ur. Though for the time being the food situation had been resolved, Ibisin's reliance on Ishbiera and other commanders must have shown them just how weak the king and his government really were. And so, in 2017 BC, Ishbiera took matters into his own hands and officially proclaimed himself to be the new king of Isin, 
the city that he had once pledged to protect for Ibi Sin. One of Ishbi-era's first acts as the new king of Isin was to send messengers to the governors of neighboring cities demanding that they submit to him. One such messenger was sent to Puzur Numushta, the governor of Kazalu. We don't have the letter from Ishbi-era to Puzur Numushta, but we have a letter from Puzur Numushta to Ibisin telling him of Ishbiera's treasonous acts, part of which reads, To Ibisin, my liege, thus says Puzur Namushta, governor of Kazalu, your servant. The envoy of Ishbiera came to me and presented his case as follows. My liege Ishbiera has sent me to you with this message. My master, Enlil, has promised to make me shepherd of this land. I have sworn by the name of my personal god, Dagan, that I shall conquer Kazalu. Since Enlil has promised me the cities of the land, I shall build shrines to all the gods in Isin. I will celebrate their regular festivals. I shall set up my own statues, my own emblems, my own priestesses. And as for you, the one in whom you put your trust, Ibisin, I shall remove from this land. Isin's wall I shall rebuild and name it Idil Pashunu. It was just as he said. Isin's wall he rebuilt and named it Idil Pashunu. He captured Nippur, appointed his own guard, and captured Negdugani, the chief temple administrator of Nippur. His ally, Zimum, took the ruler of Subur prisoner and plundered Hamazi. Nur Ahum, governor of Eshnuna, Chu Enlil, governor of Kish, and Puzur Tutu, governor of Borsipa, were returned to their original posts. The land trembles like a reed fence from his clamor. Ishbiera goes everywhere at the head of his troops. Ishbiera's clamor has become loud, and now he has cast his eyes in my direction. I have no ally, no one who could compete with him. Although he has not yet been able to defeat me, when he finally moves against me, I will have to flee. My liege must know about this. It's doubtful that Ibisin dispatched any troops to support Puzur Numushta of Kazalu though we know that he did send letters to him berating Ishbiera, calling his former commander one who is not of Sumerian seed, and making a prediction that the Elamites would eventually attack Isin and capture Ishbiera. Part of this letter may have been true, as Ishbiera was originally from the city of Mari, and may have been of Akkadian ancestry. The second part was also partially true. Elamites would capture a king, but it would not be the new king of Isin. As the Neo-Sumerian Empire lost control of its vast array of territories, new political actors arose. One of these was the Elamite king and warlord, Kindatu. Kindatu's father, Yiberat, had been chosen by Shulgi, the second and greatest king of the Third Dynasty of Ur, to oversee 
as his vassal Mostavilam from the city of Anshan. However, soon after Shulgi died, the state's grip on its most far-flung provinces 